Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Well, good morning. Hopefully you guys all got here safely. I heard in first service that there was like a bunch of crashes on 270 or anything. Anyone getting anything? No? All right. Well, good. You're here, so obviously not. Um, my name is Trig Veeker. As Sarah said, I'm the Groups and Outreach Director here at uh, Movement Church. I have the privilege of sharing just a few thoughts um, about our passage in Ephesians 4 this morning. So I want to give you an opportunity to uh, move there in your Bibles. That's going to be on page 897. We're going to start in uh, verse 11. Um, but we have essentially said that this series, Made for More, is six essential shifts for mobilization. This word essential is a technical term meaning absolutely necessary, fundamental, extremely important. And this word mobility or mobilization is also a technical term most uh, notably used in militaries uh, to uh, speak of uh, collective action, organizing troops for a collective action in pursuit of a unified goal. And so when we say that there are six essential shifts in the book of Ephesians for mobilization, what we are saying is that there are six fundamental shifts that we see Paul expressed to the church for unifying us, for organizing us as the body of Christ in collective action in pursuit of a goal, and that goal being to see kingdom come here on earth. And so we're really excited about this series. And dependent on what you value most in life, I bet you could tell me what the essentials of that thing are. If I asked you what the essential of a healthy marriage, you might tell me lots of date nights, um, lots of spending money that our spouses don't have any influence over, right? Uh, lots of um, intimacy. Those things are all great, right? If I asked you what are the essentials of having a successful business, you might tell me you want to provide a good or service that the market needs and then provide it at a rate that the market will purchase it at. If I asked you what are the essentials of having having healthy friendships, you'd probably tell me spending time together, doing things that you have in common together. But whatever it is, we value things and we know the essentials of those things that we value. And so I want to share a little bit about something that I value this morning. And here cues the eye rolls because yes, I'm going to use another football reference. So uh, I played football in college at a school called Wheaton College. And I don't say this to brag, but my senior class graduated. We were extremely successful. We played 44 total games. We won 38 of them. So we only had six losses out of 44 games. And regardless of if we won or we lost, there was three foundational things that we always came back to. You know, we were good because we were talented, yes, but these three foundational things were the most important aspect of seeing where we went wrong and where we went right in our games. And the first was discipline. The second was technique. And the third was effort. And I'm going to paint a little picture for you if you're familiar with football or not. The reason that I love football is because no sport requires so much of so many. At any one time, uh, there's always 11 guys on the field. They all have different uh, body shapes and sizes, and they play different positions, and they have different roles. And so the first part of discipline is this understanding that as a football player, you need to have the discipline to know your job on every single play and trust 
the brother next to you or behind you is going to know their job and going to do their job as well. And then as a collective unit, you go in pursuit of that goal, which is to win the game. So that was the first part, discipline. Did you know your job? Did you know your assignment? And the second part was technique. In football, football is a game of technique. It's like a chess match. But to actually play the game, you need to have the correct techniques. So techniques were the things that you would do over and over and over again in practice, whether it is your hand placement for an offense or defensive lineman or the way that you run and release on a certain route. All these things are the techniques that you'd want to be second nature when the going gets tough, whether you're up by 40 or you're down by three with four minutes to go in the game. Those are the things that we want to come out of you instinctually. And then lastly is effort. But effort was preached by our coaches, not just for the sake of your own personal glory, to say, I worked really hard. But the effort was always to flow out of our love for the brother next to me, our love for our team, our love for our family, our love for the program. Discipline, technique, and effort. Those were the essentials of our football team, more specifically of our defense. And so I wonder this morning if I were to ask you what the essentials are of the Christian faith. Maybe the discipline is knowing our gifts and then walking in them. Do we know our role on the field? Maybe the technique is understanding and completely uh, uh, just submersing ourselves in the gospel so that rather the, the, the game of life gets hard or it's easy, the gospel and the love of Christ is the thing that just flows out of us. Maybe the effort in our lives is not so much effort, but it's the effortless pursuit of the grace of God that says, God loves you, he died for you, and now you get to live out of that. And Trey and Sarah and Mark have asked this question, what are the essentials of the Christian faith every single week? And I think the book of Ephesians is a perfect place to start in the New Testament. Paul, the apostle, wrote this letter. And unlike most of the other letters that Paul writes to all of the other early churches, he's not responding to a specific problem that this church is having. He's not addressing a game plan for how they should move forward. Instead, he's writing to the church in Ephesus and saying, here are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Here is the gospel. And then here is what we actually do with the gospel. And so in week one, Mark shared with us that the first essential shift in Ephesians is moving from more effort to more Jesus. Now, not the effort that I just talked about, but the effort in the sense of understanding that we could earn God's grace, which of course we can't. And that's why we need to move from more effort to more Jesus, because in moving from more effort to more Jesus, we move to surrender, where we say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. And of course, that's foundational for our Christian faith. And once we do that, we can move from where Sarah talked about in week two, from more independence to more unity. That when we put our faith in Christ, it's not something that we do as solo individuals, but it's something that we do together as a collective unit in pursuit of the kingdom of God. And then last week, Trey, our church planning resident, shared with us on what it looks like to be uh, moved from being more full of ourselves to being more full of God. And this simply comes from understanding the gospel. There's no way to be proud in God's kingdom because he's done it all for us. He's wired us for a purpose, but we're all equal in that pursuit of righteousness. And so this morning, we're gonna focus on the fourth, fourth essential shift in the book of Ephesians, and it is this. We want to move from more hierarchy to more missionaries. 
from more hierarchy to more missionaries. So Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, page 897 in those Bibles underneath your seats. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to do all of God's work. Now, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This is, I love this part. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, <clears throat> who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does his own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. These are the very words of God. So we just all picked up a Bible and whether we know it or not, we kind of take this for granted on a Sunday morning. We are a Bible-believing church, right? And we all opened the Bible. We started to read the Bible. We started to understand the Bible. We maybe even started to think of ways that we could apply the Bible to our lives. And believe it or not, this wasn't common for people about 500 years ago. This was something foreign to them. And so I want to do a little church history this morning. 500 years ago in Europe, it was ruled by kings and emperors and most notably the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church got to tell people what to believe and why they should believe it, mainly because the priests and the bishops and the people in the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy were the only people that could understand the text in its original language, being the Greek and then the Latin Vulgate. And so they they used this and they understood that sinful people needed grace, but they created these things called indulgences. And indulgences were a way that people could pay to reduce or completely exonerate their time spent in a place that the Roman Catholic Church called purgatory, which was a place that you would go before you went to heaven, so they would say. And so these indulgences were essentially a way that people could buy their way out of sin. And the church would then use this money to build magnificent buildings like St. Peter's Basilica or plugging up different holes within their budget. Now, not everyone was okay with this. And this is where we meet a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a revolutionary type of man. He ruffled quite a lot of feathers within the Catholic church and he published this paper called the 95 Thesis. And he's one of the reasons that we're all if you got that Bible in your hand, he's one of the reasons that you're able to hold that Bible and to read it. It's absolutely amazing. And in this 95 thesis, he wrote that the Bible teaches that our faith is about belief alone. It's about repentance, not indulgences, and about grace alone. It's not about making money or the church as an institution or hierarchical systems within the body of believers. Now, of course, the Catholic Church didn't like this so much, so they came after Martin Luther. And Martin Luther fled, and he found himself in a place of solitude, and God would use such a time as this for Martin Luther to translate the New Testament from the original languages into the language of the people, the commoner. In this case, it was German. 
And so this was the crux in a lot of ways of the Reformation. The Reformation put the word of God back in the hands of the people of God. But I think, especially in the church in America today, there's another shift that needs to happen. And Paul hits it right on the head in verse 11. God gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Now, Paul lists five spiritual gifts here. This is not an extensive list. There's other lists like in Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to look up there, uh, you can look at those passages and he lists a lot of more gifts there. But the point that needs to be made is that every single person in a seat in this room has specific God-ordained, God-given, God-inspired gifts that he wants us to use in his church to build up the body of Christ. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that God knit you together in your mother's womb and he predestined you for work that he is now calling you to do? This is what our text and our Bible says. Now, some of these gifts, like in this text, have become more visible in the church. We can at least admit that, like pastors and teachers. And this is not really all that bad unless we live in a culture like ours where it is solely about performance and entertainment. Because this is just a stage. That's all that is. We set this up every single Sunday. But the danger in the stage and in these lights and in this whole atmosphere is that you can walk in here on a Sunday morning and understand the implicit message that it's sending, that the real ministry is reserved for those that have the professional titles, that the real ministry of Christ is reserved for those that have certain degrees, that went to certain schools, that have certain pedigrees, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. This is just a stage. This isn't a show. We come in here to worship the God of the universe and we're all a part of this. Yes, there's nothing wrong with pastors or teachers. There's nothing wrong even with this. But when we get that twisted in our minds, it can be a slippery slope. But Paul says that God uses the pastors and the teachers, those in church leadership to equip God's people to do his work. And so just as there was a first reformation that put the word of God back in the hands of the people of God, so I believe, and many people agree with me, that there needs to be a second reformation, specifically in America, that puts the work of God back in the hands of the people of God. Word of God, people of God, work of God, people of God. But this is how it's always supposed to be. This is why we call our groups family, servants, and missionaries, because this is not a job title. It's our identity as Christ followers to serve, to be missional, to be familial. And when we do this, collectively, look at what Paul says We will come to such unity in verse 13 in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. 
I love, I love the language that Paul uses here, maturity, full and complete, growth, measuring up. He's using this growth type language. Now, what does maturity in the Lord look like? Because I think there's also some common misconceptions here. Did you know that as a Christian, you have all that you ought to have to be all that you ought to be? You already have all that you ought to have to be all that you ought to be. In other words, spiritual maturity is not a process of gaining things that you don't already possess as a believer. It's about the process of simple development. This is why Jesus comes to his religious friend named Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because when you are born again as a Christian, you come out as an infant. And let's use the illustration as an infant. When an infant is born, it is not born without arms and legs. It has all the physical equipment that it needs to be what it is called to be. And yet the only process of maturity is developing into the person that God has called that person to be. And I wonder if some of us think that we need something else when in fact we don't. We are complete in the Lord. I wonder if many of us look at our lives in Christ. We walk in here on a Sunday morning and we think, well, I can't talk like that. I can't sing like that. I don't have thoughts like that. I don't read the Bible like that. And so if I could do those things, then I could do the real ministry. When in fact, that's not the case. God wants us to grow but we already have all that we need. You are equipped. You are complete. But nonetheless, God wants us to grow. So how do we grow up? How do we actually grow up? Because Paul says it's about building up the church through our faith, through our work, and through the knowledge of God's Son. And it grieves me to say, and I'm a part of this category as well, so don't hear this as me just being accusatory, but that some of us, including me, have stunted our growth at times, who have wanted to remain as a baby or as a toddler to use that same illustration. Because think about babies, think about toddlers. They're obviously extremely valuable, but they don't contribute a whole, much, whole lot for the better part of a decade. They consume, you spoon feed them, you change their diapers, you do everything for them. And if we're not careful with the way that we look at our faith, we can also do that too. We can walk in here on a Sunday morning and say, spoon feed me, change me, deal with my mess, and then walk out Monday through Saturday and do absolutely nothing with our faith. That's called being a baby. That's called being a toddler. And there's nothing wrong with being a baby or a toddler. They're extremely important. And if you're on that journey, and this is the beginning of your journey, do not hear this as shame. But if you've been walking through these doors for years, if you've been walking with Christ for years, get in the game. We need you. I had a professor in college. His name was Dr. Jerry Root. Love this man. He discipled me. He led me. And he would oftentimes say this to me, Trig. He'd say, Trig, a person is physically mature when they can reproduce physically. A person becomes spiritually mature when they can reproduce spiritually. I don't have all the answers, but I do know 
that we need to be sharing our faith. We need to be reproducing spiritually if we are to become mature in Christ. When was the last time that you shared your faith? This is a perfect time. We're walking into the holiday season. We got Thanksgiving, Christmas. We got the people we don't like and the people we love all in one room. How amazing is that? And we could share Jesus with all of them. Some of them we probably want to share Jesus with more because we think they need it a little bit more, right? But nonetheless, we have these opportunities. When was the last time you did those things? Because look at what Paul says is we won't be mature until we all come together working in unity. I'll use another example. Some of you guys know this illustration better than others, but either way, it still rings true. Who has been, and I was one of these guys uh, in high school that would go to the gym and sit and work on bicep curls for like 35, 40 minutes every time I walked into the gym and worked on just what I like to call the mirror muscles. The mirror muscles are great. They're, they're useful. But if you only train those mirror muscles, you're not actually healthy. And so you might deceive people into believing that you are healthy as an individual holistically, but all, if all you train are the mirror muscles, you don't train your cardiovascular system, you don't train your legs, you don't train other things, you're not actually healthy holistically. And I wonder sometimes if this is happening in the church where we look at other churches and we look at their mirror muscles, which aren't wrong, but we think, wow, can you believe the building that they have? That must be a healthy church. That must be a maturing church. Wow, can you believe the worship albums that they produce or the podcasts that they put out? That must be a healthy church, a maturing church. Can you believe their Instagram account? It looks so spiritual. It must be mature and healthy. And again, none of these are wrong, but they are the mirror muscles. They are the things that become more visible in the church. And the danger that we can fall into is thinking that our church is maturing if only certain parts of the body are growing. In fact, this is a really sensitive subject for so many people. But when, what do you call when something is abnormally growing as, as it relates to the rest of your body in your life? When this happens in people's lives, it's called cancer. When something is growing not the way that it should be, not as a whole, we call that cancer. We need to grow as a body of believers together and in unison, and we need everyone to be on board. And this goes for people in leadership too. If we aren't equipping, we aren't growing. But what would our church look like if everyone in this room saw their lives, where they live, where they work, where they learn, where they play, as their primary ministry setting? What would it look like if our church staff was not evaluated with how their ministry was going, but how well they equipped other people to do ministry? Because when we walk in our gifts, when we begin to grow as a church together, what Paul says will happen is absolutely amazing. We'll be rooted, we'll be strong, and we'll be able to handle a whole lot, which is why Paul continues in verse 14. He says, then we will no longer be immature like children, 
We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body. Now, Paul begins here with another amazing image. This is nautical language, where the waters are the influence in the teachings of our environment, and the boat is the direction of our lives. And he's saying, don't be immature like children. He mixes that metaphor with this nautical language because children are tossed about to and fro within the teachings of their environment. And just think about our kids in this room. I mean, some of you have kids, some of you don't, but all of us were kids and we just tend to conform to the environment that we're in, right? We kind of go with the flow, go with the waves of where we've been. And I know every single parent in here, for better or for worse, has had moments in their lives where their child says something or does something that has either made them incredibly proud or unbelievably embarrassed. Because that's just what mommy and daddy did. That's just what mommy and daddy said. That's just the way mommy and daddy acted. I am already praying for my kids. Lord, have mercy. But kids pick up everything. They generally just, they go with the flow, right? In other words, what Paul is saying is the immature in Christ are tossed about like a boat in a storm. And the water that we sail in as Christians is far more of a greater storm than we would probably like to admit in our culture. And so Paul says to combat this, we must speak the truth in love. And there's two key words here, truth and love. Truth and love. Now, unfortunately, our culture's definitions of both of these words are no longer rooted in reality. We shouldn't have to talk about what truth and love are, but we will this morning for this sake. For better or for worse, pop culture dictates the majority of our popular opinion and modern thought. That's just the way it goes. And we live in a my truth culture. We live in a my truth culture. I guarantee you, you guys have heard this. That's that's your truth. That's my truth. But truth is not personal. It's objective. It's universal. And the problem with this is that it treats truth as if it's a matter of opinion or perspective. But not only is this completely false, but it's self-obsessed and narcissistic. Since when did we as human beings become the center of the truth in the universe? And not only that, but if we play this out and let's say my truth infringes upon your aspect or understanding of your truth, then what do we do? But this is the waters that we're swimming in. I'm not going to say who, but a few years ago at the Golden Globes Award, someone gave, someone famous gave a, a, a speech and they said, speaking your truth is the most powerful thing we have in this world. Are you kidding me? What a joke. If we don't all have the same truth, that's just going to cause confusion. But I will tell you this, she's close. Speaking the truth, the truth is the most powerful thing that we have in this world. Now let's talk about the word love because we throw truth and love around in such flippant manners in our culture today that when we actually need these words to mean something, they won't. Love now is rooted simply in feelings. It's not about action-oriented. It's not about 
being actually loving in the way that we treat one another. It's about if you make me feel a certain way, then that means that I love you. And the problem with this is also that it's completely self-obsessed and narcissistic. Phrases like you complete me or just accept me the way that I am say more about our consumer mentality of love than the way that we would actually serve one another in love. Not only that, but love is more on par with acceptance nowadays than anything else. And I can tell you how dangerous this is in my own life by an amazing example of someone who did speak the truth and love to me. I have a good friend. His name is Jackson Brown. Some people in this room have met him. He's an amazing man of God. He's one of my best friends. He stood in my wedding. And when we were at Wheaton College, he was one of the main people in my life as I was a baby Christian to teach me and to lead me into what it means to be a Christ follower. And I distinctly remember a painful conversation that I had with him one day where we were having dinner with some friends at the cafeteria. And after getting up, putting our trays in the bay window of the cafeteria and walking out, he pulled me aside and he said, Trey, I need to talk to you about something. And then he pulled me aside and he said, Trig, I just want you to know these are brothers in Christ that we've been having conversations with about life and about the depth of relationship and whatever it is, and you're just not a very good listener. I just want you to be a, a little bit of a better listener because when you will be a good listener, I know what God has called you to. You will love people well, but you're just not doing it very well right now. And in that moment, it really hurt me. Like, it hurt to hear the truth. But I guarantee you, my wife will thank him for that conversation. It hurt. Because it would have been so much easier for him not to say anything, to not upset the apple cart of our relationship. Because what I think our culture mostly calls love today is actually cowardice. If you just accept me, then we can love one another. That couldn't be farther from the truth. He loved me, and so he said what I needed to hear in that moment to transform me. And what our culture often calls mean is actually courageous love. It was courageous for him to love me like that in that moment, and our culture says that's mean. Are you, are you kidding me? But these are the waters that we swim in. And if we're not careful, we will be tossed about if we don't tether ourselves to the true truth and the real love. And I'll be the first to say, I desperately need brothers and sisters in my life who love me enough to say, you know what, Trig, this is the truth. And that's just about listening how much more does our culture need this on a moral and a spiritual level? Because what is the result if we don't? People are being tossed about. People are believing lies that they are so clever that they sound like the truth. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And so how do we combat this? Well, Paul gives us the most amazing answer. And we've already talked about it. Speak the truth and love. And when we do, we will grow in every way to be more and more like Christ, who is the head of the church. There's this amazing passage in John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the disciples are just a bunch of uh, just, they're empty headed, I swear. You read the gospel sometimes and you're like, how are you not getting this stuff? And he talks to them, and they're asking him about truth. And he says, You are truly my disciples 
if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, the disciples, they don't get it. They keep acting the way that they've been acting. And so six chapters later, Jesus has to clarify it. And he says, one of the most stunning statements in all of religious literature of all time, when he says, you know what? As for truth, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And this is the most stunning expression of anyone of all time, because every major world religion makes truth claims but they all say that they point to the truth. And here the God of the universe comes down in a little child in the town of Bethlehem. And then he grows up in the town of Nazareth and his name is Jesus. And he comes onto the scene and he says, I don't point you to the truth. I am the truth. Look at me. This is the God that we serve. I am the truth. And so what that means Do you see what he's saying is that everything he did, the life that he lived represented ultimate truth. And so our other option as believers, or even if you're in this room and you've never put your faith in Christ is to examine his statements and say, I reject that. And by doing so, accept that you are living a lie. Yes, I said that. Not enough people in our culture are saying that nowadays. There is a hard truth. There is real love. Speaking of love, can I point you in that direction as well? Let's look at what John says in 1 John about real love. This is real love, that you would work really hard and love God. No, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Yes. This is real love sacrifice. You know what God does? Like my friend Jackson, he looks into the absolute cataclysmic mess of our lives. He sees all of the dirt. He sees the stuff that you don't even want your spouse to see. He sees the stuff that you wish your kids never saw. And he sees it and he loves us. But this love was not free. It was costly. In fact, it cost him his life. And when God asked him, will you do this? Will you give up your life? He said, yes, I will. And then he went to the cross for us. That is real love. That is real truth. And Jesus, he's done everything to show us. And this is precisely why we need to move from more hierarchy to more missionaries because there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. We're all jacked up. We're all sinners. We all need grace desperately in our lives, whether you're a pastor or whether you're coming off the street as a prostitute. In fact, Jesus spent way more time with the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors than he did with the religious elite. And when it came to the religious elite, he absolutely spanked them with the truths that he spoke. That's the Jesus that we serve. He sees how messy you are. He's not afraid of it. He gets right in it. This is why there's no hierarchy. You're called to his work. Do you know that? Whether you're a father, a mother, an employee, an employer, whether you're a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, a writer, a lawyer, you work at Jimmy John's, I don't care. God has called you to be a missionary. Why? Because truth and love matter and they need to be shared with the world right now that desperately needs it. Do you know that you've been sent by God right now, right here? 
And when we do, Paul says this amazing thing to conclude, and this is where we'll stop. He says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Let's go back to that image of discipline, technique, and effort. What if the discipline of our lives was understanding that God has gifted us uniquely to go into the spheres of our influence and to be the hands and feet of Christ right where we are and then to understand the brother and sister next to us has their own job and that we wouldn't judge them for what they're doing or where they're going to spread the gospel of Christ, but know that we're all working in tandem for mobilization and collective unity What if our technique was that we were so filled up with the gospel, we read our Bibles, we spent inordinate amounts of time in prayer with the God of the universe that when the game got long, when it got tough, whether it was easy, whether we're winning by 30 in life or we're losing by 30, the thing that first comes out of us is our love for Christ and the love of Christ. And as for effort, As Christ followers, the effort on the field is actually effortless. When we realize that the game has already been played, the score has been set, and we have won the game. I was that kid, and some of you guys are coaches of your kids' teams that would be constantly pulling on the pants of my coach, going, put me in, put me in, put me in. And I don't know if that was either because I was very bad, could be the case, or because I was just eager to get on the field. But what if that was our posture as a church? Put me in, coach, put me in. I want to go into the game. And instead of saying no, he took our hand and he said, I'm going with you. I'm going to go play with you on the field. I'll be right there with you. How would our life change if we knew that? We got to do it with joy. There's nothing left to be done other than to respond. And when we do, he says, Paul says that we will grow into he who is the head of the body, the church, Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? When I look at a human being, the first thing that I look to to recognize them is their face, is their head. If you take away our heads, we, don't under, we wouldn't be able to decipher who was who. And he's saying when we start to do this, we actually start to look like Christ. We have the eyes to see like God sees. We have the mind to understand. We have the lips to speak his words. We have the ears to hear his voice. This is what will happen when we come together and be missionaries for Christ. We get rid of this hierarchy and we move towards missional lives in service to Christ. The early spread of Christianity was all about informal missionaries, just people coming to know Jesus and saying, I can't do anything but not tell everyone about him. We have an opportunity this morning. We're gonna spend some time in worship. We're gonna spend some time in prayer, just responding. I don't want you to hear this message as a message of condemnation, but it is a message of conviction that we need to be in the game.
for Christ. But we're going to spend some time in prayer. I'm going to have some of our group leaders after this, as I pray, get up, surround the room. If you need prayer this morning, whether it is to be commissioned into your place of work, your family, your home, or you just need prayer because something's not right, whatever it is, there is no shame. We're going to spend time in worship for the rest of our time together, and we're just going to respond in prayer to our Heavenly Father who loves us so much. Let's pray. God, our Father, we praise you for what you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. You've given us everything that we need to be mature followers of Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's any of us in this room that are dragging our feet, including me, that we would let go of our inhibitions. We would give you everything that we have. We would... uh, pursue your kingdom, and we would do it not as individuals, but as a unified and collective um, people. And then I ask that if there's anything that um, we can do personally in our lives this holiday season, uh, whether it's in our families and our friend groups, amongst our employees or amongst our coworkers, that we would share the love of Christ, the truth, the true truth, and the real love that this world needs. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.